All right. Well, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been walking through uh, the first four lessons of a discipleship series that we started and that I'm excited about. We're going to take a break from it this morning, and it wasn't necessarily planned this way. Um, Circumstances this week, I think, somewhat dictated where I thought the Lord was leading us. And so I try to be sensitive to His leading in my studies during the week. And, um, and so I'd been studying all the passages I wanted to teach on, and nothing was coming out of them that I felt was uh, being inspired. However, there was a study that was concurrently developing I did a mental survey, an accounting, if you will, this week of some of the various trials and situations that this church and people associated with this church have been dealing with. And this is just this week. And this is just what I knew about. Some of us sadly had to attend the funeral of a friend and a co-worker who unfortunately took his own life. Some of us grieved and coped and counseled with a fallen brother who's facing serious charges for a sin that he's committed that is criminal. Some of us stayed diligently by a parent's hospital bed as they faced near death from kidney failure but are recovering. One family was preparing to rush their child to Lubbock for possible emergency surgery. Some of us are trying to encourage and grieve a former pastor and a friend whose brother tragically died of heart failure as he was trying to get to him to say goodbye but wasn't able to make it. The words that I would use to describe this week and the trials we faced are serious, life-changing, devastating. Those are the words I would put down. And like I said, that's just the things I knew about this week. Trials come to us all, whether self-caused or not, they come. What or who in those times do we turn to? Many people, unfortunately, turn to substance, Alcohol, drugs, prescription medications, all these are common to dull their nerves and provide a way of escape from some of the harsh realities of life. And we probably all know someone with some, with whom this is the case. But the realities may never change. All we do is we simply numb ourselves to the reality of it. It's clearly not an answer. So I ask us again, what or who do we turn to? Maybe we're not the one who turns to substances to get through. Maybe we're the ones who turn to work, to hobbies, to stay busy, to stay distracted. This is common as well, and I see it often as a pastor. It's a form of escapism still. It seeks to avoid the difficulties associated with pain, with hardships, or whatever might follow. We simply stay busy and don't let those realities sink in. Maybe you turn to friends. Maybe you turn to family. And in many ways, this is good. We're commanded to do this as the church. We are commanded to come alongside one another, bear one another's burdens. We need to do this. And the community of faith needs to learn and practice this truth consistently. In fact, I met with a young man yesterday who I respect and I admire. He's a mature Christian. And he was opening up about things that he was struggling with. And I just sat there and listened and thought, man, this is a good example for me to listen to, to practice and emulate. But even here, our friends and our family are going to fall short, church. Because not for lack of trying on their part, not for lack of ability to meet the need. 
They don't have power and they don't have grace to give us to meet that need. It's in the hardest trials and toughest situations that our hearts are finally moved to come to the place where we seek one who is stronger than us. Trials create that environment to move our hearts to a place of desperation. There's only one who can help us, the Lord God Almighty. And when the heart knows that, it becomes desperate for Him. In fact, I read the account in the Gospels just as an illustration of blind Bartimaeus. You remember blind Bartimaeus? And I just want you to imagine with me his situation. He's, he's been blind, constantly dependent on people. And he's sitting by a roadside so he can beg for, for provision. He hears that Jesus is coming by. And what does he do? He starts crying out in desperation. Why? Because this is his chance. This is his chance, and he's not going to lose it. He cries out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. You know what the Lord does for him? Just as Bartimaeus was calling out to the Lord, the text says, God called out to him. (laughs) He met him there. He met him in his need of desperation, his moment of desperation. So this morning I'm taking a break from our discipleship series, and we're going to read and go through Psalm 70. Make your way there, please. We're going to look at the theme of that psalm, that those who cry out to God for help find it. They find it. It's meant to be an encouragement for us. As I said, it's not a typical week, but it is a reality that we've had. So Psalm 70, as I make my way there, says this, To the choir master of David, for the memorial offering, make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father God, we are poor and needy. That is is our resume. Seth Ellsworth, poor and needy. Nothing to offer. And yet your eyes are on us because you love the poor and needy. You answer those who call to you for help. And Father, our hearts in moments like we've had all week need that hope. So Father, give us that hope. Teach us in times of trial because they will come, Lord, teach us to call out to You. Because as the Scripture testifies, You are a very present help in time of trouble. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 1, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Very simply, David clearly cries out to God for help and deliverance. It's an easy verse to summarize. Twice he says, make haste. And so David 
is crying out for help and deliverance, and he's crying out for it urgently. Make haste, O Lord. Verse 2 tells us the reason why. In David's case, he says, Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Then he follows that, let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. So David is evidently facing some enemy who is both seeking his life, and if they can't get his life, they're delighting in his harm. I'm not sure what event David's life at this point is referring to, but David in his life had no shortage of events that it could refer to. If you know David's history... He was constantly being threatened. It started out with Saul constantly chasing him, threatening his life, trying to do him harm. When he became king, it became the Philistines were his constant enemy. And then it moved to his own family, Absalom, seeking to usurp him as king. These are just some examples from David's life. And so there's no shortage of opportunities for David to pray this prayer. Many things could refer to it. Whatever the particular event was, What we see from this verse is that David needed help and deliverance, and he needed it urgently. Further, David very quickly and simply offers this prayer up to God. He gets straight to the point. So our first point this morning from this, I want you to see, and I've seen this all week, that we need to cry out to God for help and deliverance. It's an easy transition. Just as David did in times of trouble, so too we. Unfortunately, as I said in my introduction, so many of us, we know this truth, but what we actually turn to is something other than or someone other than God. The first thing David did was cried out to God, and so it is that we need to cry out to God. David was a king. He ruled a kingdom. In this particular example, the trouble was someone or more people seeking his harm and maybe even life. I know that for many of us, at least as far as I know, you're not a king ruling over a kingdom. And I don't know of anybody who's facing someone chasing them down to murder them. Could happen. But, even if this particular example doesn't apply exactly as it did to David, it applies in a general sense to us. The theme of God being our help and deliverance is common in Scripture. Psalm 34, 17 says this, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their trouble. And Psalm 107.6 says this, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distresses. Nonetheless, every one of us face circumstances at some point in our life where we need deliverance. Missionaries, we're about to have our missionary couple here, our team here. Missionaries often do face the threat of murder. And so while that particular part doesn't apply to us, it's not irrelevant. Many people do face the threat of murder for the sake of the gospel. And so this psalm in particular becomes even more pertinent to them. For us in America, most of the trouble is not that, but there's trouble nonetheless. There's even a book in the Bible that highlights and talks about this theme of deliverance. The very book bears that name, Exodus. The entire book is the account of God delivering Israel. 
It's a huge theme in Scripture. Here's the theme verse of Exodus. It's chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. So overwhelming and consistent is this theme of God being our deliverer, it's hard to turn to a book of the Bible and not find it. It's common for us. And the point is, the response on our end is prayer. Prayer in general is offered up by Christians for a variety of reasons. We thank God, for instance, for faithful provisions to live. We praise God and thank God for His provision of grace for sin. We pray like Paul for opportunities to share the gospel. We are to intercede and pray for those who've fallen into sin. We pray for our children. And we praise God for the gift that they are. These are common examples of what prayer is to us. But there is a kind of prayer that only adversity and hardships can teach us. They are times, there are times where prayer becomes an urgent plea. And if you've been in those times, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because it's the very cry of the heart. I think of Peter in this case. Remember when Peter was called out to walk on water with the Lord? And he did. But when he looked at the circumstances, he began to fear and sink. And what was his simple prayer? Save me, O Lord. And the Lord answered it. I was studying a little bit about the animal kingdom this week. And uh, I know there's some people who like to watch birds. I've never found great enjoyment out of that. But what made me think of this is, is one of the nights, I was up really late, and there's a bird. We had our windows open, and it was, it was maybe midnight or so. There's this bird that was chirping and crying, and I'd never heard that bird before. And it was beautiful. And I, I just sat and listened to it for, for hours and hours. It chirped and sung, and it was just very, very clear. So I just started looking up some statistics on it. Common ravens can generate up to 33 different categories of sound. Many of these different sounds, for the raven at least, have different meanings. And one of the common meanings, at least in birds in general, is they have a particular cry, a particular call, that is a cry of alarm. And some birds can even tailor that cry for the particular threat. They can even change the cry depending on the severity of the threat, the immediacy of the threat. The songbird, I wanted to read this, the songbird creates a high-pitched sound that won't carry very far, but alerts friends who are immediately in the vicinity of a rapture who's coming, a raptor, sorry. Maybe that bird's going to be raptured <laughs> in his belly. Of a raptor flying overhead. There's... Their species of, of birds, for instance, the chickadee, can utter this high seat sound when there's an aerial predator flying over them. Or if they encounter an owl that's not flying over them, but perched somewhere and the owl's eyeballing them, they make a different sound, the chickadee sound. And then if they, if they are really being threatened, they add many chickadee-dee-dee-dee-dees on it. <laughs> and I could try and do that for you, I'm not going to. But I just found it interesting that even in the animal kingdom, when there's threats, they have cries that match the threat. 
It's instinctive to them. And they tailor it to the threat. It's not unique to birds. Many animal species have this. So what's the point of that for us? Well, in times of trial and hardships, there's a type of prayer we need to offer. It is particular to the situation. It is urgent. And it asks God for urgent help and deliverance. This kind of prayer should be instinctive to us. In various trials and hardships that we may face, we need to tailor our cries to God according to the situation and urgency. God is a God who hears our cry, and we need to be specific in making the cry. In verse 2 of Psalm 70, I lost my place again. I'm going to change my bookmarker. Verse 2, David goes on, Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! So in verse 2 and 3, David cries out against those who are seeking his life and harm. David was king, as I said, and Israel had no shortage of enemies. This was a common prayer of the kings in the Old Testament. They were God's chosen people, and the kingdom of Satan hates God's chosen people. And he will always bring enemies against God's chosen people. So David is asking God to thwart that, to bring those who seek harm in his life to ruin, put their plans to shame. He's appealing, in other words, to God to providentially and sovereignly act over those people where David has no control over it. And this is really the point for us. It's, it's clear for us, whether in regard to people or circumstances, whatever it may be, we cry out to God for His providential acts to be over those situations that are out of our control. We appeal to a God who is stronger than ourself. People and circumstances, both of these threaten the faith of the believer and both tempt the Christian to not trust in the Lord's care. Scripture admonishes us to remember the Lord that He both uses the plans of evil people for His ultimate purpose, and He also makes a way of deliverance through circumstances that seem to threaten us. Listen to this verse out of Isaiah 43. This is 18 and 19. Isaiah says, Remember, or the Lord says to Isaiah, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. What God just told us is that He makes a way where there is no way. That's providence. When we are faced with circumstances that are beyond our control, we appeal to a God who's over those circumstances, and He makes a way through it. That's what David is asking, and that's the principle for us. God uses men's schemes to accomplish His own purpose. The Bible is full of this. The greatest example of this is the cross. What people meant for evil against Jesus, what did God do with the cross? Brought the ultimate good. That's providence. That's sovereignty. Not only that, we see in the cross that those who wanted to shame Christ and thought that they had were the ones who were ultimately shamed. That's what David prayed. Put them to shame, Lord. Why? Because in, in people, when they attack your faith, the shame is not on us. The shame is on them. 
And God will not be mocked. Maybe it's not people threatening you. Maybe it's circumstances. The same is true, nonetheless. I wanted to to illustrate this as I thought through Scripture. Lord, what's a good example of, of you making a way where there was no way and then boom. I'd already gone to the book of Exodus, so he took me back there. Exodus 16 is the account of God having just devastated Egypt through the plagues. And the people of Israel are going out of the land, and the first place that God leads them is where? To the edge of the Red Sea. Where they're surrounded by mountains on one side and the other, there's one path backwards which they came through, and there's a sea blocking their way to move forward. Exodus 16.10 says this, When Pharaoh drew near the people of Israel, they lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. It's what we've just been describing. Circumstances beyond our control. Fear sets in. What do we do? We cry out to the Lord. God tells Moses, why are you crying out to me? I've already told you what to do. Take your staff, stick it in the sea. And Moses did that. What happened? The sea was split and they walked through on dry ground. Now, no mind could ever conceive that that's how God would deliver you. No one could conceive that. But that's just the kind of God we serve. When you are faced with circumstances, in other words, and here's the point, when you are faced with circumstances beyond your control, and I've listed several, like I said already this week, what do you do? You pray for God to make a way that you don't perceive. You cry out to Him. And God will do it. He makes a way in the desert. He causes it to bloom. (laughs) That's the imagery. That's the application for us. The third point in verse 4 in Psalm 70, as David continues, he says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore that God is great. So David now moves from praying against those who, who would harm him to praying for those who rejoice and worship with him. He exhorts all who love God to cry out in worship and rejoicing because of his salvation. David doesn't seek, in other words, to drag others into the mire during this trial. That's easy for some of us to do. Some of us have a tendency to be Debbie Downers, right? And when we're suffering, I want you to suffer with me. (laughs) But what does David do? He exhorts you, no, rejoice and worship. This is the key to overcoming circumstances, by the way. David has told us the key to strength is to praise Him. Now, I know it's easy to say now, but when you are suffering hardships and severe hardships, it's another thing to hear the words, you need to praise the Lord. You know what I mean? But church, that's the key to overcoming anything. When you can come to a place in any circumstance of worship, you're the victor. There's nothing that can overcome a worshiping soul because there's nothing causing fear. Worship is the key to overcoming. Jesus made the same point for us in Matthew 5, verse 10 and 11. 
In his Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, I don't know one of us who wants that to happen to. I don't want to, I don't want people uttering bad, evil, untruthful things about me, but it happens. Jesus says you're blessed. And then he says this, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who are before you. You see, when you come into this position of, of suffering, especially for righteousness sake, you are entering a great company of people who've endured it before you. Who found the secret, how do I overcome circumstances that are difficult? They found the secret as you worship God. He is good all the time. There's the great cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews 11 says. And they're all watching and they're all testifying. Persevere, endure. God is good. Worship Him. Worshiping God in trial frees our heart from fear. It keeps our mind and heart steadfast on the deliverer rather than the trial. Now, I wrote down several things that worshiping in the midst of hardship does for us. The first is it encourages your heart in the trial. And if you've been in severe, severe trials, you know you need encouragement. Now, I listed a, a number of things that we turn to to try and find encouragement, and all will ultimately come short. You have to turn to God, ultimately. Here's what the Scripture says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. 1 Samuel chapter 30 is the account where the Amalekites made, made a raid on some of the cities that David was ruling over, and they took captive all of his men, uh, all of his men's wives and children, as well as David's wives and children. A lot at stake. David chased him down, ultimately got the wives back. But before he did that, as they were sitting there grieving what had just happened, David separated himself out and says this, he took courage and strengthened himself in the Lord. That's why David was such a good king. Because he would go privately to the Lord to find his strength. Psalm 27.14 says this, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.4 that God comforts us in all of our affliction. The second thing that worship does in trial is it brings to memory God's promise. Jesus tells us this, Truly I will be with you to the end of the age. The writer of Hebrews quotes the Lord saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we can confidently say that the Lord is my helper. Whom shall I fear? What can man do to me? Psalm 25, 2 and 3. Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. And then he concludes, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. You see, when we worship in hardship, it brings us back to the core truths that anchor our soul in God. And it brings them to memory. And we need that during trials. The third thing I wrote down that worship does is it's a powerful testimony to those watching. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you want to turn to the book of Daniel real quick. We don't go to Daniel often, so it might take you a little bit to find. It's after the book of Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel is after Lamentations. Lamentations is after Jeremiah. Getting you close. Daniel chapter 3. The context of this is Israel's been taken captive to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And while there, Nebuchadnezzar builds this great statue of himself made of gold and he commands every person to worship him. And there's three Hebrews standing out in the crowd who refuse to bow down to his image. Under threat of death, he says, you will do it or you'll be tossed into the fiery furnace. They say, toss us. They're not afraid. Verse 28 says this. This is, uh, they were tossed into the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, I'm sorry, I skipped part of the context. Let me fill you in. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. See, Nebuchadnezzar looked in the fire and he says, didn't we throw three people in there? Yes, king. Why do I see four? And one of them looks like a son of the gods. So he says, come out. Verse 27, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar, here's the testimony, Nebuchadnezzar answered said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, hardly Christ-like, but and their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's profession here is more of a political profession as, as opposed to a profession of faith. He would, I believe, come to faith later in the book. But here's a political alliance. Hey, none can deliver like their God. I want some of that action. He doesn't trust in the Lord. Now, we, we think that this account is fanciful as opposed to historical. Well, I don't know if this account that I've seen is true. We all saw what ISIS did and how they came into Iraq bloodthirsty and, and ruthless to people. One of the groups that they particularly hated was called the Yazidis. You've probably heard of them. There's a testimony of a man who was a Yazidi, but he says he's a believer in Jesus, who said that he was taken captive by ISIS set on fire three different times and not once was he ever burned. And they freaked out. And he said that Jesus would appear to him and say, I will deliver you. I will help you. And he did every time. Now again, I don't know the accuracy or the historicalness of that account, but I do know that it's happened before. And so I don't put it out of bounds. There's a powerful testimony of those who watch you in times of trial and suffering. There are people who are watching you. It's a great opportunity for us. One of my favorite Christian men to study, read about, is Hudson Taylor. You've heard me talk about him before. He was the missionary to China and the first one to ever go to inland China and establish the China Inland Mission. His life is full of accounts of hardship. 
He lost a wife during childbirth, lost the child that she gave birth to. In fact, he lost several children on the mission field. And as his wife lay dying in her, her bed after childbirth, the account speaks of, of him kneeling down by her bedside and praying to God and saying, thank you for the time that I had with her. But I pledge myself anew to your kingdom. It's a moving account. He wrote some letters to some friends, William Berger and his wife afterward, who were in London, running the mission from London. And here's what he said. I want you to just hear this heart of worship and trial that, that filled Hudson Taylor. He said this, Many, many thanks for your loving sympathy and bereavement in my bereavement. I do from day to day and every day so delight in the love of Jesus. It satisfies my thirsty heart when most desolate from His fullness. Feed and rest in green pastures in the recognition that His will has been done and is being done as no words can express. He only knows what her absent is to me. Twelve and a half years of such unbroken spiritual fellowship, united labor, mutual satisfaction and love fall to the lot of very few people. But were the loss any less, I should know less of His power and sustaining love. Did you get that? I, I pray that I could utter words like that if Jill were to pass. To say, Lord, if my love hadn't been as great for her, as it was, then I would have known less of your power and sustaining love in the trial. That's beautiful. But Hudson Taylor knew the secret to spiritual power. It's worship. It's worship. Just as David had said, can we say God is great when trials come on us? You will find your freedom when you are able to say that. David concludes this Psalm 70, verse 5. He says, but I am poor and needy. I love that. I'm not going to camp out here very long. It's easy for us to, to kind of fly off into ecstasy when we worship. But David has a way of grounding us to reality. Yes, worship and exalt in the Lord, but don't forget who you are. I'm poor and needy. Our exalting in the Lord, if we're not careful, can draw us away from that essential grounding truth. But I am poor and needy, he says. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. So David here changes his tone. In verse 1, he's asking God, make haste to deliver me. Here in verse 5, he says, you are my deliverer. It's a, t it's a change. And it's an important change. In fact, this is the most important point of the whole psalm. Why can David be so confident so as to ask God to hasten him in verse 1 and verse 5, but then in verse 5 say, you are my help? What, what's the key to his confidence? Well, we read it, and you might have missed it. Look at the very beginning of the psalm. It's not labeled with a verse, but it says, to the choir master of David for the memorial offering. That's the key to this whole psalm. The memorial offering is first mentioned in Leviticus chapter 2. It's in association with the grain offerings that Israel was to offer. When they would make a grain offering, a portion of the grain, 
as well as oil, fine flour, and frankincense were to be set aside and burned on the altar as a memorial offering. And what the memorial offering was, was this. The one who was making the offering was memorializing or remembering God's faithfulness and favor. It's the whole structure, it's the whole canvas on which David paints this plea of his. Why can David pray to God to make haste and come to me? Because God is faithful and His favor rests upon us. That's the canvas of it all. If you don't have that backdrop in your life, you will not pray this kind of prayer. But when you've come to know God's grace, you can make this kind of cry. And you can ask God, make haste to come to me. Because you know God is faithful and His favor is upon us. That's the key. That's why we, to make our point, can be confident of God's help. We can be confident of God's help when we call because He is faithful and His favor, His grace, rests upon us. This is the great benefit of those who've come to faith in Jesus. God has set you squarely in His grace. As we just read, He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's bound Himself to you by an oath and He's sealed it by His blood. It's the greatest illustration right there. Christ, our memorial offering, continually remembered before the Father as both our sacrifice as well as the One who intercedes for us. His prayers continually ascend, as Hebrews says, in intercession for us. So like David, we can move from pleading with God for urgent help to saying, you are my help. In counseling, for me, this is some of the things I try to look for in people as they're dealing with grief. There's a season in grief where people are just crying out to God. But as they wrestle through it, and as they work through grief, their, their language in their heart and prayer changes. They, they say, you know what, I, I have been crying out to God. And I've heard this personally this week. That's why I can also say this. I have been crying out to God. And I know He's answered me. I do have peace. It's beautiful when it happens. Because this kind of grief and sorrow and fear and trial is gripping. And it can be devastating. It can be paralyzing to people. But when you move from simply crying out to God to saying, you are my deliverer, you walk in the freedom of Christ. So we've all had various hardships and trials. My point this morning was hopefully to help lead us as a church in particular seasons of church life. I think this is necessary to take a break, meet us where we're at, and lead us to a place of green pastures to feed. That's been my desire this morning. The plea of urgency is the simple cry of the heart in times of trouble. We saw David be prompted to cry out for deliverance and help. For us, whether it's people or circumstances, God is sovereign over them. Right? We saw that our cries for help, in them we should recognize His ability that He can do something about it. We considered the attitude and the posture that we need to, to be led into. Worship and rejoicing. Rejoicing in hardships is counterintuitive to us. Worshiping God when dealing with difficulty crucifies our flesh, but it is the key to becoming an overcomer 
in all things. And last, we looked at the glue that holds this prayer together of ours, God's favor and faithfulness. God is the subject. It is to Him we cry, and we can cry with confidence because of His grace. May our cries for help, our memorial, remember God, that He is faithful. God meets our need with His power so that we get the help we need and He gets the glory He deserves. I want to end with an example, again, of just confident prayer. Confident prayer. And it's taken from uh, Hudson Taylor's counterpart, George Mueller. If you don't know George Mueller, he's a, another tremendous man to study. If you're, if you're desirous to know how to walk in faith, study George Mueller and Hudson Taylor. George Mueller had been in ministry for 57 years when this account happened. He desperately needed to get to Quebec, Canada. And so this is in the 1800s. He hired a, a boat captain to take him there. And he needed to be there in, uh, in the next day. And the captain said, I'm sorry, but that's not going to be possible. Dense fog has just blanketed the way we're going. It won't clear by then. George Mueller told him, um, in 57 years, I have never missed a ministry engagement. But the captain replied, it's impossible, I'm sorry. Do you know how dense this fog is? And Mueller replied to him, my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of life. So he said, let us go and pray. So the captain went down below the boat with him. George Mueller knelt down and he prayed. This is according to the captain. This is the captain's words. He prayed one of the most simple prayers I've ever heard. When he had finished, I was going to pray. But George Mueller put his hand on my shoulder and told me not to pray. He says, as you do not believe he will answer, there's no need for you to pray about it. Get up, captain, and open the door and you will find that the fog has gone. The captain did so, and the fog was gone. And he made his engagement in Quebec. Can you pray with confidence like that? You serve the living God who's over every circumstance, far beyond our control. What peace can we enjoy that's afforded to us? Let's pray, church. Father, we thank You that You are a God who hears our prayer. That You are a God who's faithful. That You are powerful. You work on our behalf, even in circumstances beyond our control. And all You require from us is that we cry out to You. Father, I pray You train us through the circumstances of life, the hardships that we will inevitably face, to learn this plea, this cry out for help. Whereas Paul said, it is when we are weak that we are strong. Father, help us not turn to replacements as good as they might be in finding help. There is none who helps like You. May You become, for our church, our help, our confidence, and our strength in times of trial and hardships, Lord. Help us to carry one another's burden. Help us to love each other and intercede and pray for one another. Help us most of all 
Father, to take each other to the throne room of grace, where the writer of Hebrews tells us that's where we find grace and mercy to help in time of need. God, may you be glorified in every circumstance we might face. May you grow our confidence, Lord, through these things. We pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.